Show of hands, who's ever heard Victory in Jesus played on an electric guitar? <laughs> All of you now, right? I'm glad I know Charlie. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. Well, folks, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Before I begin our text this evening, I thought I would follow up on something that I mentioned last week. I had several folks uh, ask me a question about some comments that I had made uh, last week. Last week we were talking about how when David defected over to the Philistines, uh, I was suggesting that in some ways he was functioning for us as a worldly Christian. A worldly Christian, which means that in that case, he is a negative example that we should not imitate. I used six different times, I went back and looked, the word carnal or the phrase carnal Christian, which can be some confusing. I had several questions, uh, which I always love. Uh, all preachers, all, all pastors love it when folks ask questions. It means you're listening, it means you're thinking for yourself, and that you're engaging. So uh, I love it when, when folks do that. I had several helpful questions that were asking me about that, um, because the phrase carnal Christian can can be confusing. Um, I'm not using, and I wasn't using that term as a theological category, but rather I was using it to describe a genuine Christian or believer who is greatly influenced by the things of the world. A, a Christian who is living worldly. It's an important clarification because in our day of cultural Christianity, uh, or what remains of cultural Christianity, we all have the experience, I'm afraid, of meeting believers or folks who profess to be believers but have virtually no fruit in their lives. We, we sadly know many folks like this. All they have is a profession, a profession of faith. And some seem to excuse this lack of fruit in their lives with the category of a carnal Christian. That I'm just a carnal Christian. As I've preached many times, and as the Bible makes clear, that it is impossible to be a Christian and not to produce fruit. So the idea of a carnal Christian doesn't really make sense. Which is a reminder to us that none of the sin makes sense in our lives as believers. If we know God and we know Christ, so we're waiting for the day that we're freed from that entangling sin. The scriptures make it clear that faith without works is what? Dead. It's dead. However, we must also acknowledge that some Christians produce more fruit than others. In our walks, in our walks with the Lord, we experience seasons of relative fruitfulness and what I guess we could call less than fruitfulness. There is such a thing as a backslidden Christian. One who falls into habitual sin and then refuses to repent. And though he may genuinely be a believer, his life and profession are legitimately called into question. I've told folks before, I know that you profess to be a believer, but you're not living like a Christian. And if you don't repent, you are in great danger. As I've said many times before, Lord willing, I'll say many times again, the mark of a believer is not that we do not sin, but that when we sin, what do we do? We repent. We repent. I believe that during this period of David's life, he was living in unrepentant sin, as we saw in the last couple of chapters. 
that he was extremely influenced by worldly desires. And so in some senses, he was functioning as a worldly or carnal Christian. Yet as we will see tonight, thankfully, David returned to the Lord in repentance and faith. And in doing so, he magnifies the sovereign grace of God, doesn't he? Sinner, come home. Come home. Tonight, our text in chapter 30 begins with David and his men returning home after this long stint of at least a year, perhaps a year and a half, uh, with the Philistines behind enemy lines. Last chapter, we saw how David had providentially dodged a major bullet that God had delivered him and that David would not have to fight with the Philistines against his own countrymen. And the story begins tonight with David and his men making the 60-mile journey home to their families at Ziklag, where they are surely eager to see their wives and their children. But as we will see, when they return home, they were not met with happy children or warm sheets from their beds. Instead, they were met with the sight, the horrifying sight of smoke. And they realized that their homes had been burned and that their families had been stolen away by some unknown enemies. David is faced again with more trouble. In the end of First Chronicles, the author of Chronicles tells about the death of David. And he looks back over David's life and there he uses a phrase which I think is illustrative of this season in David's life. I'll read it for you. It's in First Chronicles chapter 29 where the author says this, Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer. And he goes on to say, With accounts of all his rule and his might, and of all the circumstances that came upon him. All the circumstances that came upon him. That last phrase, you could translate it, all of the times that passed over him. It gives us this picture of waves, wave after wave after wave of suffering. When trials and suffering just keep on coming, as they did for David, one after another. Ever since chapter 18, we've been following David's life and it has been nothing but trouble and difficulty. Sorrow after sorrow. When trials and suffering just keep on coming, or as the song says, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Have you ever had a season like that in your life? Where you survive one trial only to be faced with another trial. And then you survive that trial only to be faced with yet another trial. The prophet Amos a master preacher, speaks of this experience with a graphic illustration that perhaps is familiar to you. He says that this can be like a man who runs away from a lion and is only then met by a bear. And then when he escapes the bear into his own house, he's met by a snake that bit him. Any simple study of the scriptures or the life of Christ or even Christian biography and church history Reveal that God's people suffer. We suffer. The Christian life, though it is a happy one, I'm convinced, is not happy because of our good circumstances. It's happy because of hope. 
Hope that is not yet realized. Hope that is coming. All the sufferings of David and all the sufferings of Paul and all the sufferings of Jesus attest to Jesus' words. In this world, you will have trouble. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. But the scriptures teach that for the believer, our suffering is never, it is not ever in vain. God will not waste one drop, one ounce of your suffering. In fact, we learn as we take a large view, as a zoomed out view of suffering in the Bible, that when in the hands of God, our difficulties and our sufferings actually become a tool for sanctification. And that brings us to the main idea from our passage this evening, which I'll read in a moment. And that is this. God will very often bring us to the end of our ropes until we reach complete desperation. He does this in order to break us of our sinful habit of seeking salvation and comfort in other places and to teach us to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. To strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Our chapter this evening is a long one. So I'm going to read most of it and summarize one small portion of it. So let's turn our attention now to the inspired and errant, helpful word of God. When David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against Negeb and against Zilkag. And they overcame and they, and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, and Ahim of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal and of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his own sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. So David set out the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, where those who were left behind who were left stayed behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor. In verses 11 through 16, we read of how they met an Egyptian servant of the Amalekites in the wilderness who had been left. And we actually realize this is how David learns who had taken, uh, who, had, who had conducted this raid, and he knows who and where to pursue. He, this servant leads them to the Amalekites. Verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. 
And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook of Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with them. And David came near to the people, and he greeted them. Then all the wicked and the worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Verse 23. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be he who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramah, the son of, the, of Negeb, in Jatar, in Jatir, in Orer, in Sifmoth, in Eshtema, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jehemelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borashan, in Atek, in Hebron. For all the places where David and his men had roamed. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you please help us tonight? We pray that you would accomplish what you intend, that your word would pierce into us deep, dividing our motives and our intentions and our thoughts, so that you would change us. So, Father, I pray that tonight my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Let your word alone. Let it remain. Let it have weight. And let it bear fruit in our hearts as we apply it. We trust these things to you and ask that you would do it for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I'd like to draw your attention to five lessons from this text this evening. There are many more, and we could take these much deeper. But let us start and content ourselves with this. Number one, God often works when we are totally overwhelmed. God often works when we are totally overwhelmed. I can't imagine what it would be like to travel 60 miles through the wilderness only to find that your home has been burned to the ground and your wife's wives, can't imagine that either. <laughs> that your wives and children, your family, have been taken after a subtle but remarkable act of salvation back in chapter 29, David had just escaped one crisis only to face another crisis. Like waves in the ocean, the suffering of David just came one after another. I remember being at the beach with Karis this summer and she asked me, Daddy, do the, ra- do the waves run out? I said, no, they keep coming. And that's what it felt like for David. His suffering came one after another. 
The God of David who is faithful to save, who is faithful to preserve, who is faithful to deliver, is also a God who apparently, for whatever reason, does not think it wise to prevent suffering from entering to David's life. We have to reckon with that. Unless you remain unmoved by the fact that this is just a literary account, an inspired literary account, and not some major motion picture, notice the depth of suffering that is described for us. Look down at verse 4. Try to picture this. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept till they had no more strength to weep. Have you ever been there? Have you ever cried till it felt like there were no tears left? You just kind of gave up? Have you ever faced pain so great that it becomes debilitating? That it takes all of your strength, perhaps even your desire to live? Have you ever experienced times of such trouble that you conclude, this is my last straw, I just can't take it anymore? And then... You see the smoke of Ziklag and you realize that there is a last straw after the last straw. That's what David and his men faced. And like every other sufferer in the history of the world, David and his men, just like you and I, certainly tried to make sense out of their suffering. They tried to find meaning. And to make matters worse for David, now he is facing death. In the bitterness of their grief, his men talked of stoning him. Now in a moment, we'll consider how we can respond to such suffering and where we can find hope, but let's, let's zoom out and consider the big picture lesson of suffering first. And what do we make of David's suffering? Ever since chapter 18, David's life has been one of suffering and difficulty, tremendous difficulty. And we've scrutinized David as he has been betrayed and falsely accused, as he's been hunted down like an animal. We've seen David so desperate that he faked insanity and he crossed enemy lines just to ease his suffering. David has certainly, as the Psalms attest, cried many tears. He's had many bitter nights. But how can we as readers from our position with the entire Bible, how could we not see that God has been working? That though David knew much sorrow, that God has been working. Has not God been calling David to himself? Has God not been calling, Dave, calling to David in his wanderings? Has God not been patiently drawing him back into intimacy? Has God not been strengthening David's faith? Has God not been wooing him and teaching him, you can trust me? Do you see it? I have an airbag in my truck. I know this because I just got a recall notice on it. My truck's 2003, so I wonder what's been going on, whatever. I've got an airbag in my truck, and I suppose I'm thankful for it, but I really have no idea if it works. Because I've never needed it. Right? Unlike an airbag, which we only need in the event of, a, of an emergency, we need God more than we can possibly imagine. 
And God will not only allow, but I believe he will even lead us into seasons that are totally overwhelming for us so that we will learn to trust him. So that we will learn to seek him. So that we will learn to obey him. God tells us in his word through the psalmist that your love is better than life. But it's in our sufferings that God proves to us that his love is better than life. And let me tell you what tens of millions, perhaps many more of Christians have discovered before me. That any sacrifice that is made along the way to knowing God better is worth it. Any sacrifice on route to knowing God better is worth it. Have you ever regretted any loss that enabled you to know Christ better? I mean, think about it. You may not have you may not be able to explain it all yet, but have you ever regretted any loss of stuff or relationships or health or opportunity that enabled you to know God better and then regretted it? No Christian would ever say that. Anything that enables us to know Christ more surely is worth it. Is that not what Paul means? In Philippians chapter 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as what? Loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. King James says, dung, that I may gain Christ. Brothers and sisters, God's purposes for your suffering may be much more complicated than this, but they are never less than this. Every ounce of your suffering, whether it's physical suffering or emotional suffering or relational misery or financial suffering or martyrdom itself, it's all designed to give you more Christ. If you know Christ, that promise is true for you. So take comfort in that. Dare I say, even rejoice in that. That's what we're commanded to do. But that doesn't mean that you have to like your suffering. David and his men, verse 4, raised their voices and wailed. They wept until they had no more strength to weep. But what then? The text tells us that David, in verse 6, though he was greatly distressed, he strengthened himself in the Lord. So let's turn our attention to that now. Point number two, how is it that we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord? This chapter 30 version of David is a different David than chapter 29 version of David. If you look back over my life, there's different versions of Nathan. I hope I'm growing, right? This is a different David than the one that we saw flee from the Philistines. Or Saul flee to the Philistines. God had been making progress in David. God had taught David well in his circumstances. And David, it seems, had grown at least to some degree weary of living on his own strength. Living according to his own wisdom. Walking in the path of his own knowledge. And so now here at the end of verse 6, we see him strengthening himself in the Lord. And in verse 7, we see him running to the Lord in prayer. This is a stark contrast to David's men. 
who apparently are freaking out there in verse 7. David turns from looking to his own strength and from looking at his own understanding and instead turns and casts himself upon the Lord. So first, we have the call to imitate this. But how is it that we do this? We all know we're supposed to seek the Lord in our trouble. But how? How do we do this? Certainly, this is more than some superficial Christian platitude. I hate those. This is more than a Sunday school answer, right? This is real faith in real life with real tears. David didn't just say a prayer and poof, gone were his problems. He certainly didn't donate to some schmuck on TV and gone were his problems. He didn't just read his Bible a little bit more and gone were his problems. God is not a genie in a lamp waiting to be rubbed before he makes you feel better. That's not how God works. And this is more than just David having a good cry. This is not just some cathartic emotional release. No, David finds real help from Yahweh, a real God. How? But how did he do this? I mean, how exactly are we to imitate him? How do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord? Well, I think we could develop this in a couple of ways, but to be as textual as possible, if we were to go back to 1 Samuel 23, you don't don't need to do this, but if we were to go back to 1 Samuel 23, we get a very important interpretive clue. Because the text there says in 1 Samuel 23 that David strengthened, or that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord. Listen, listen to the text. David, uh, sorry, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Sound familiar to our text here? Jonathan, if, if we, when we looked at that several months ago, he proceeded to do two things. Number one, Jonathan reminded David of the promises of God. God is going to give you a throne, David. And then, of course, he appealed to God's character. You can trust him. God keeps his promises. He reminded David of the promises of God, and then he reminded David of the character of God. And I believe that we could assume that David strengthened himself in the same way here in chapter 30. And that we too would find strength if we were to strengthen ourselves in the same way. Brothers and sisters, as we have said many times and in many, many ways, when you find yourselves overwhelmed with the difficulties and the sufferings of this world, strengthen your heart. By remembering the promises and the character of God. We just talked about this on Sunday night in our thinking class. Strengthen yourself. Nourish yourself in the promises and the character of God. This is best done by constantly living in and reflecting upon the scriptures. Saturation. Andrew Bonar was a pastor of the Free Church in in Scotland. And I think that he left us an example of this that we could follow. On October 15th, 1864, he he wrote in his diary of how that afternoon during tea, which was his custom, he was meditating on Nahum chapter 1 verse 7, which says this, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. 
30 minutes later, his wife of 17 years, Isabella, died. Stunned and shocked by the news, Bonar described his suffering and his sorrow as a most grievous wound. But almost immediately, he strengthened himself in the Lord with Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. After his wife died, he read, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Remembering that verse, he said, Little did I think how I would need this verse just a half an hour later. For the rest of his life, especially, he journaled all of his life. And the rest, for the rest of his life, especially on that anniversary of his wife's death, Bonar spoke of the comfort that he found for all of his days in Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. That's what it means to strengthen your heart in the Lord. And the Bible, Nahum 1-7 would be sufficient, but the Bible is so much bigger. If you don't read Nahum, you don't get Nahum help, right? Read the scriptures. It means that we are to identify some promise of God and some portion of his character and then remind ourselves. Remind ourselves of what the scriptures say about him and about his promises. And then we apply those precious truths to our situation. You bring them to bear to your problem. I know you have problems. How much scripture has shed light upon your problems? And then remember with eyes of faith, trusting in him who you cannot see. Strengthen your hearts in the Lord. We could take that much further, but let us move on to a third observation about this text. We can notice a wrong example of what to do in terrible circumstances. This can be helpful. It's like looking in the mirror when your hair is everywhere. Just as we got a quick note, uh, just as a quick note, we can learn from the worthless fellows. Not my word, the Bible's word. You know any worthless fellows? Don't raise your hands, right? Worthless fellows who are among David's men. It's, it's an example for us of how not to respond. There in verse 6, we're still in verse 6, we learn that their grief, that the grief of David's men was so great that out of that grief they wanted to stone David. It is so common of human nature that in the midst of our sufferings we try to find someone or something to blame. And Obama's gone, so we've got to find something else, Right? We try to find someone or something to blame. In the midst of our sufferings, it doesn't matter who it is or how, it's as long as someone else gets the other side of our blame. Perhaps we blame God. Perhaps we blame someone else. As long as we can blame someone Often our blaming may not be dramatic. It often takes the form of just taking out our pain on someone else around us. Have you ever noticed that tendency in your own life? It could be major or it could be minor. I'll give you an example from my life because it's pitiful. I think I've shared this before. I remember vividly, vividly, a night back in 2008 when I cruelly snapped at my wife for something that she said to me. The problem was not what she said to me. The problem was that my Tar Heels were losing to this blue, devilish team 
And I remember it very vividly. We beat him the next game, but it doesn't matter because I snapped to her out of, out of my grief, right? I was turning my circumstances down and pushing it out, out on someone else. I was suffering, and I was, and I wanted to take it out on someone else. Comedy aside, is that not true of us in our suffering? Do we not want to take our suffering and share it with other people? Not in that healthy, bear my burden sort of way, but in I'm miserable, you're going to be miserable. We want vengeance. You see, when we're the center of the universe, and then the universe doesn't revolve around us, we freak out. And we expect everyone should be freaking out too. We want to make other people suffer just because we are suffering. When the sorrows like sea billows roar, let's be on guard against our tendency to take others down in our grief. Be on guard against ways that you're blaming, blame shifting, especially in the midst of suffering. Far better off we would be if we were to imitate David in verses 7 through 20, which brings us to a fourth point. We've addressed this before, so I'll keep this part brief. When we are overwhelmed, when we are suffering, seek God and obey Him. Seek and obey. Here we pick up on a theme that we've seen all throughout the book of Samuel. Difficult circumstances are not an excuse for us to disobey God. And they're not an excuse for us to blame God. On the contrary, they're an opportunity to run to God and to obey Him with all of our hearts. In the past, I've called this kind of cutting through the fog, that, that experience we have of life is so confusing and there's so much pain, I just don't know what to do. I don't even know, have you, I mean, I don't even know how to obey God right now. I don't even know what, I don't, what should I do? I don't know what to do. I what would even please Him right now? When you can't see because you have tears in your eyes, there are two things you can always do, no matter what. You can run to the Lord in prayer. And you can obey his clear and present word. That's what David did in this text. In his last two crises, we did not see any account of David calling out for an ephod. He was not calling out to the Lord. We didn't see that. In fact, it's been seven chapters since we heard David ask for the ephod. Which, of course, is... One of the means that God gave uh, the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, to seek his will. It was, it was kind of a yes or no prayer <laughs> device. I'm not sure what to, how else to describe it. Yet this time we see David running to the Lord. And God gave him, in verse 8, a clear answer. He said, go pursue them and you will overtake them. There's a lot of things that are marvelous about this passage, but I think that we should marvel not merely that God answers prayers, as marvelous that is, but that God answers the prayers of sinners. Not simply that God answers prayers, but that God answers the prayers of sinners. It is amazing to me that David's past failures did not disqualify him from seeking the Lord today. God didn't throw David's failures in his face. Instead, he gave him mercy. He hears. Just like the father of the prodigal son, our God rejoices that his son, who is lost, has come home. Now, you may be thinking, like I was, all right, where can I get an ephod, right? That sounds like the ticket. I want one of those. 
How can I get, I mean, a yes or no? I mean, how much more would you be praying if you got a yes or no answer every time, right? I think that would probably compel some of us to pray. It it, it can be so tempting for us to think that our suffering would be easier to bear if God would give us answers. I mean, even if they were just yes or no type of answers. Well, we don't have Abathar the priest. And we don't have access to an ephod. But can we not say that what we have is better? You remember Hebrews chapter 4? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. In Christ, we have a far better priest than Abathar. And we have a promise. Did you hear that? We have a promise of a guaranteed yes every time. We don't have this yes or no system that's set up. We have a yes system. You go to God for grace every time you get it. That's what Hebrews 4.16 says. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's a yes system. He doesn't give you what you want. He gives you grace. In Christ, we have a far better priest. If you go asking for grace, if you go asking for help, what's the promise? You get a yes every time. And is that not far better than a yes or no? We may not get the precise explanations we want. We may not know why we have suffering. But we're guaranteed the grace that we so desperately need. What I've noticed in my problems, especially from my perspective now, that as I think back on them, the problem was not that I lacked information from God. The problem was that I needed the grace to act on the information that I already have. We need grace, not information. I don't need answers to all of my whys and my how longs, O Lord. What I really need is God to say, yes, I'll help you. And we have that promise in Christ. Praise God. In our sufferings, we don't need more information. We need more grace. Once David heard a word from the Lord, you'll notice, especially in uh, verses 9 through at least 20, we see that David acted and he obeyed. Verses 7 through 20 tell us how even though David didn't know where to go, he didn't even know who to pursue. We're told at the beginning that it was the Amalekites, but David didn't have 1 Samuel 30. He didn't know it was the Amalekites, right? He didn't know where to go. It's really hard to go pursue the raiders if you don't know who the raiders are or where they went, right? All, I mean, it's just incredible. And, And in this case, we see what does God do? He providentially provides, I had to summarize this portion of the text, but we see God providentially provide, kind of in the background, just like he had done in the past. In this case, he does it through the scouting services of an Egyptian straggler, a servant who was abandoned and left behind to die by the Amalekites. When this guy was, well, he was really hungry and thirsty, so they they fixed him up. And after that, he led David and his men to the Amalekites. And there God gave them total victory over their enemies. 
And God restored to them all of their wives, all of their children, all of their livestock. And the text is very clear. Not a single thing. Not even small things. Maybe fidget spinners. All of it was restored. And not only that, they got the spoil of the Amalekites, which is all this extra livestock that's coming back. You'll notice this, that one of the many lessons here for us, one to simply notice, is that even when the Lord answered David, he didn't tell him who, he didn't tell him when, he didn't tell him why, and he didn't tell him how. Those answers would come later. All that mattered was that David sought God and then he obeyed. Brothers and sisters, whether you find yourself facing wave after wave of suffering, or whether the sun is shining down on you in a good season, seek the Lord and obey everything that he reveals in his word. And he'll take care of the rest. One final concluding thought, a fifth lesson that we can see here is that grace begets more grace. In verses 21 through 31, we we see and we learn that those who have enjoyed the spoils, those who have enjoyed the grace of God, are now in a position to give it away to others. Verses 21 through 31 tell us of this strange kind of awkward controversy that seems like it would have no use for 21st century folks. Remember that out of David's 600 men, only 400 men had enough stamina to cross the brook, right? The other 200 did not do their Pilates, and so they were, they were pooped. So they stayed behind with the baggage. And when David and his 400 men, the fighters, returned with all the spoil, they didn't want to share the spoils with the Pilates baggage guys, right? Yet David would have nothing of it. And not only did he make a lasting decree that those who supported the army, the army would receive as much as those who fought, but verses 26 through 31, there at the end, where I stumbled through these distant names, showed us that David actually took the spoil and distributed it. Not just among the guys at the baggage, but among all of the land. He went back and shared them with the villages who had helped him, him and his men, over these long months and years of exile. Now, there's some debate over why. Some say he was politicking, right? He had a kingship to win. Perhaps that's the case. But I think verse 23 reveals more. Look at what it says. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that has come against us. You see, David knew what his men had already forgotten. He and his men didn't win the victory. God did. So it made sense to share the spoils. Is that not exactly what God has done for us in Christ? That though we are often faithless, and though we are in many ways the worthless fellows of this passage, that Christ lived the life we could not live, he died the death that we should have died, and then he shared all the spoils of glory. He expects us to do the same with others. Those who experience grace are inclined to give grace away. And there are many, many applications there. I couldn't help but observe. I didn't read this anywhere else. So maybe take it with a grain of salt. But can we not also reflect on the fact that all of the earth is God's, is the people of God's. That one day he will restore all things to his people. All of the earth is his and he will give it all to us. 
when we recognize that we've been given so much that we do not deserve, we are then inclined to give it away to others. Whether that's our stuff, whether it's grace for failures, or whether it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go and give. Those who have received grace have been necessarily transformed. And since all that we have has been given to us, let's be inclined to give it away. It's not running out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ who has given to us what we do not deserve. And so now we respond by giving him glory, which he does deserve. To Christ alone be all the glory and all the power and all the praise. Triune God, be exalted in, on earth as you are in heaven. We ask this in your name. Amen. We have a business meeting that will start in just a few minutes. Yes. Yes, no service. Uh, there'll be no services next Wednesday, Thanksgiving week. You can prepare turkey on Wednesday night. Or you can help your... Never mind. No services next Wednesday. Thanks, so.